today, uh, as we're going to talk about um, how great uh, God is, and we're going to think about that as we look at this chapter in Isaiah uh, 41, I went and I was, I was reading a bunch of articles this week about uh, just kind of the, the heading of how to take control of your life. Like how to have control and how to get things together and all this stuff. And what I found as I started to read and kind of research a little bit is there's a whole lot of articles that tell you how to control your life. Uh, just the first thing was like every single one was like six ways to control your life, seven ways to control your life, 20 ways to control your life. Like all these different, almost the same article over and over, uh, or how to control your life with better boundaries or how to make things better in this way. And so I just started reading through all these different articles. I probably read six or seven of them. And real quickly, uh, you started to see that they were all pretty similar articles. There was a lot of overlap in the same articles. Uh, the ones that were six ways, seven ways, 20 ways. Basically, they were all kind of repeating the same things and different. And so as I started to read through them and I was looking at them and looking at these different articles, you know, it was like how to have control of your life uh, with better boundaries or or it gave similar advice of like uh, to have better control of your life. You need to be more selective in who you associate with and spend time with or be more organized or have goals or or have a to do list. And then as you accomplish those things, cross off the things that you've now accomplished. And as you do this, it will start to give you better control of your life. And I read all these articles. I think there were seven that I read. And there was only one that I felt like was actually more genuine in what it was saying. And the title was how to feel like you have control in your life. Because what I read in all those articles was here's a way to limit the things that you're spending time on and kind of narrow your focus so that you can have this delusion that you're actually in control of everything. And so I want you just to think about those those articles, maybe reading through those, trying to take the advice of it, making your list, kind of thinking those things through. So uh, I don't know where you would read this or where you think about it. Maybe you're sitting in an office or at a table at your house or just say you're in your bedroom, in your home, and you're reading through all these articles, how to take control of your life and you're making lists and to-do lists and how I'm going to do these things that it says. And then if we could just zoom out, maybe you've seen like the Google Earth, if you've ever played around with those maps that show, and we could zoom out from your house for just a second. And so we go from your room, your living room, to now we see the top of your house, and then we go higher and we see kind of all of Dawsonville. And then we zoom out and now we see greater Atlanta and then Georgia and then the United States. And then all of a sudden we pulled up back far enough that we can see the earth. Right? We can see the earth from outer space. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but let's say we got a time lapse. I saw a video like this this week and you can actually see the earth rotating. Did you know, the earth rotates at a thousand miles an hour and spinning at a thousand miles an hour on its axis as it rotates. And if we could pull back even further and we start to get a better image of what it looks like, the earth not only is rotating on its axis at a thousand miles an hour, it's rotating around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour as it spins, as it zips through space, right? And if we could go back even further, we'd start to get a, a picture of how great our solar system is and how big it is and all those things, right? So you've got that image in your mind. Now, think if we could kind of zoom back in back to your room, right? We go all the way from space back to the earth, all the way in, and we get back. And there you are writing your list of how I'm going to take control. It's absurd when we stop and think about it, like the way that we try to hold on to these things, like how I can have control and how I can control these things in my life and what it looks like. 
And so we're just going to start here. Dear friends, you are not in control. It is a delusion. You are zipping through space at 67,000 miles an hour right now, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't get off. (laughs) There's nowhere else for you to go in this. Right. And so when we start to think about the things that we kind of put in place to try to have some control in our life and that struggle that we wrestle with. If I can just do these things, I can kind of get it under control. I can just see and kind of put it in a a more manageable way, which is really what all those articles were saying. Limit your focus to the few things that are right in front of you that you can have control over. Which, by the way, those articles aren't wrong or bad. Some of the things they say, there's some good advice in it. I'm not poking fun at that. But I want you to think about the, the grand scheme of things. And when we pretend like we're in control and when we start to operate that way, And we start to take this place that I'm in control and I can control these things and I can do it. There's all sorts of negative emotions that come with that. There's a weight that you're trying to bear that you can't bear, that you're not ultimately in control. And with that comes anxiety and fear and a whole host of other negative emotions, stress that goes with that as we're trying to control things that are actually outside of our control. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the truth of who God is and the fact that he is actually in control, that God is great, that he is sovereignly in control of all things. And it's the first of four sermons that we're going to do. So today and then three more, we're going to talk about what we talk, uh, we refer to here at Church of the Apostles, if you've been around for some time, is the four G's. God is great. He is good. He is gracious and he is glorious. And the reason that we use this tool and we talk about this, maybe this is new to you. Uh, Sometimes I say things a lot to people regularly in conversation and then realize that some people don't know what I'm talking about. And so uh, Josh Lowe and I were having that conversation the other day. He was like, I've heard this and I feel like I should know what it means, but I don't really know exactly what you're talking about. And so that's why we're going to go through this today and begin to talk about what this looks like, that God is great and he is good and he is gracious and he's glorious. Because it's a simple tool for us to help see the big picture of who God is and the way it's revealed to us in Scripture. And so we read through the Bible. We have something that we call systematic theology that we've we've kind of taken from the Bible and we've tried to put into different categories who God is to help us understand a bigger picture of our theology. Theology is just the study of who God is systematic as we put it into a system to understand And so you can read systematic theology books that are a thousand pages and it puts into all these categories who God is and what he's like and how we relate to him. And so what the four G's is, is just trying to take some of those great big headings and simplify it into a tool that we can use. It's a good place to start. It's not all inclusive. It doesn't capture everything about who God is, but it gives us some big handles to help us when we're wrestling with negative emotions and things in our life. Because what happens is that we see real quickly as we walk our way through it, that there's certain things that we're not believing is true about who God is. And oftentimes we can trace it back to that God is great, that he's sovereignly in control of all things. And I often forget that. And when I forget that, I try to take back control in my life and control things that I can't control. And it causes all sorts of problems. The same is true with God is good. He alone can satisfy your deepest needs. And when you start to believe the lie that you can find that ultimately in something else, it will lead to a whole host of problems. And so I operate from time to time in unbelief, believing that something else is good that can give me what only God can give me. 
The same with God is glorious. When we say God is glorious, we mean God is better than anything else, that he alone is the most glorious thing in all of the universe. And what he says matters more than what anyone else says. His word stands over everyone else. And when I believe that and when I am holding fast to that, when someone comes along and they say something uh, contrary to what God says, or there's a struggle there, I can rest that God is glorious and he is more important and his word stands above it and I can hold fast to that. And the last one, God is gracious. We say that God is gracious. We don't have to prove ourselves. Your relationship with God is because of what Jesus has done for you, not your performance. And so at different times in our life, we struggle with our performance and how we're doing and the ways that we see those things. And we need to be reminded that God loves us completely and totally and fully. And it's all because of what Jesus has done and nothing else. God is gracious. You don't have to prove yourself. And what you will find as you start to think through these and as we go through that the next few weeks, this is a simple tool to help you understand the areas of your life where you're maybe temporarily operating in unbelief. And so we say all the time is we want to grow as disciples, that we want to grow in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. We want to take the areas of our heart that are operating in unbelief and come into belief about who God is and the way that he has said that. So all that to say, when we talk about the four G's, we talk about these cards and questions, it's just a simple tool for discipleship to help you diagnose where am I operating in unbelief? And then be reminded of who God is and what he's like. And so today we're going to talk about the first one. God is great. And so if God is great, he is sovereignly in control of all things. We don't have to be in control. By the way, that's a delusion. You're not in control anyway. So you might as well give that up to start with. And see that God is in control and what that means for us. And so I want us to think about that together from Isaiah chapter 41. And so we're going to look at that passage together. There's a problem that we have that, that leads us to believe we're in control. But then what God answers here, and then how do we live in light of that? So the problem that we have, how God answers it, and then how we live in light of that. So let's start with the problem that's presented here in Isaiah chapter 41. So verse 1 says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. So I want to stop there for just a second. Background that's really helpful is we're in the book of Isaiah. We're almost 600 years before Jesus would come. Kind of big movements we see in Israel's history. And Isaiah is a prophet that God spent, sends and he speaks the truth and calls people back to faithfulness. But in chapter 41 here, it's pretty unanimous in the thought that who he's talking about when he talks about this king that comes and he drives out nations before him. He tramples kings underfoot and he makes them dust with his sword. It's talking about the nation of Persia led by Cyrus the Great. Cyrus is their king, is leading them on this charge, and it's a pretty scary scene. Right? He's, he's trampling everything that comes before him. And so we see these big movements throughout the Old Testament. Uh, we were talking about Jonah for the last couple of months. Jonah was sent to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was in power for a time. After Assyria came the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. 
And then after that comes Persia. And we see these big movements. We're to this point in Isaiah where Cyrus the Great is coming on the scene and he's beginning to lay waste to people. And it's a scary scene. And so look at what it says in verse five. The coastlands have seen and they are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble and they have drawn near and come and everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. And so you see this image, this picture here of what's happening. Cyrus is leading the Persians and they're coming in and they're laying everything waste in front of them. And it's a scary scene. And so it says, what happens? Everybody kind of huddles together and they pat each other on the back and they go, it'll be okay. We're all right. We've got this. And it says in verse seven, the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with a hammer him who strikes the anvil. They say of the soldering, it is good and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Right. So they get ready and they do their thing and they're they're making their weapons and they're getting all ready and they're patting each other on the back and they're saying it's going to be fine. And so in the face of big, scary things happening in the world, what they do here is they all get together and huddle up and pat each other on the back. And so I want you just to think about that for just a second. The army is coming through and it's a scary thing. And maybe you feel that at different times. Maybe you're somebody who pays a lot of attention to the news and you pay attention to what's going on in the world and you see the rise of things happening. Right now, the news cycle is Iran is getting really kind of tensions are getting ratcheted up with Iran. And if you watch that, you can start to go, oh, that seems kind of scary. If you devote a lot of time to that and you start to think about it. Or, or the same with North Korea, or, or maybe uh, the same with ISIS a couple of years ago. We see those things and maybe you feel that. But the truth is where we live, thankfully, where we get to live and God has blessed us with, we live in a country with relative peace and we're safe or there's at least a feeling of safety where we live. Even when I read the headlines about Iran, I'm not really too scared about Iran coming over here. If I'm honest and I think about it and, and so I start to see that. And so when we start to talk about the things that we do see in our life that come at us, that maybe reveal uh, some cracks in our delusion of being in control, oftentimes they're much more personal than that. Oftentimes they're more uh, on a relational scale in our life rather than great big things of armies and them taking over like they were dealing with here in Isaiah 41. Uh, maybe it's a more personal crisis. Maybe it's a relational issue in your life. Maybe it's a more personal crisis in a health scare. You or a loved one. Right? What happens when suddenly there's a diagnosis or there's a scare that comes in with a health issue? Suddenly you realize I'm not in control of this. And it can be very scary at those different times. Maybe the same is true uh, with a a job or the loss of a job or a financial crisis. And we have those things come at us and we go, oh, I don't know how to deal with this. Suddenly it's very hard to deal with. Or, or maybe it's more existential than that. Maybe it's something like the passage of time. I don't know about you, but I, I've been feeling that more lately in my life. There was a picture that popped up today on, on Facebook this morning or yesterday. And it was of Jed and Asher when they were two and three years old, the first time that we climbed Sawney Mountain together. And there they are sitting at the top, two and three years old. And I'm like, that's 10 years ago. How did that happen? How are they now like going into middle school? And here they are. And, and I can't stop that. I am powerless against the passage of time. I can't believe school's about to start again. 
And I'm looking at it thinking, slow down. But it alerts me to that I am not in control of that. And there's nothing I can do to make that slow down. And so maybe it's not armies. Maybe it's not nations coming through. But it's things like that. And what happens is we get alerted to the fact that we're not in control. But what we often do is what they do here in verses six and seven. We gather around and we pat each other on the back and we go, oh, it's OK. Uh, make a list and <laughs> write down the things on your to do list and how you're going to do. And that's how you take back control. And it's like that's just kind of like kicking the ball down the road. You're just ignoring the truth. You're not in control of those things. There's a lot of things that are outside of your control and that can become hard. But what we often do is we try to put our hope into something else, whether it's make a list or the way we do it or or uh, maybe uh, time's passing too fast with your kids and I want it to slow down. And so I'm going to try to protect them in every way I know how and I'm going to put all these limits and all these things. Not saying don't protect your kids. Seek to protect your kids and love them and disciple them. But what we often do is we go to these extremes of like, I'm not going to let anything happen to them. I'm not ultimately in control of that. They're going to grow up and they're going to leave my house and they're going to go out and I'm not in control of those things. It's an illusion that I'm trying to hold on to. And so we put our hope in other things. Uh, Alistair McGrath, who's a, a theologian and a philosopher, says that whenever we remove God, that we will transcendentalize something else as a the hope. And he's often talked about this in terms of politics. Sometimes we can see the world and the way it's moving and we get so bound up and man, things are a mess and this is scary and I don't like the way things are going. And so we go, I know the answer is, is to elect person X and then everything will be OK. And we transcendentalize something other than God to be the answer and put our hope in it. And that's what they're doing in this passage. They're all patting each other on the back. They're all going, it's okay. We'll make better weapons. We'll do these things. You get to the end of the passage. They're putting their hope in idols. They're pursuing after those things. And that's often what we do. We try to put this delusion of control. But what? But that doesn't work. It's just a matter of time before the cracks start to show that we're not actually in control. So what is the answer? So look at what God says as he answers in the middle of this. You've got these first three verses where he's painting this picture of the nations going out and, and Cyrus leading the Persians and laying people to waste. But then look at what it says in verse four. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. And so God says, I am in control of all of this. There's not a generation that comes that I am not over. There's not a thing that happens or a movement with nations that God is not sovereign over as they happen. He says, I am control. I am the first and I am the last. I am he. God allows Cyrus and the Persians to come to power and begin to lay waste and to go out and to do these things and to take over and to make these great big movements in history. And God's not surprised by any of it. God's not sitting on his throne going, oh, no, what's going to happen next? How are they going to do this? It says he is sovereignly control of all of these things. Now, I want to be careful what the Bible says. It tells us that God is in control, that he is sovereign over all, but he gives us real choices with real consequences. 
And so that doesn't mean that when Cyrus leads the Persians and they go out and they lay everything to waste, that they are uh, doing so with God's approval. That God's like, yes, that's what I would like to see as you lay nations to waste. But what it means is that God is big enough to use the choices that they are doing with real consequences for his purposes. That it's never outside of what he is going to do and the way he's going to turn things and the way he's going to bring it about. Proverbs uh, 21 1 says this says the king's heart is like water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it where he will. That God is nothing catches him by surprise. Nothing is like, oh, no, how do I deal with this now? He's sovereignly in control of all these things. But that doesn't mean that everything that the Persians were doing was God's uh, what he wanted to see or the way he was wanting them to operate. It's the same that we saw with the Assyrians or the Babylonians. If you read through the Bible and their great violence in these things. But yet God uses that for his purposes. He is that great that he is over all these things in all these ways. And so I want you just to think about how God's working in this. Maybe you know the story of the Bible. Uh, maybe you know all these inner workings of these kings that come and nations rise and the way it goes. We go from the Assyrians. They destroy half of Israel in 722. They destroy the northern kingdom. After them comes the Babylonians. They come in and destroy the southern kingdom in 586. Wipe out the temple. Destroy all of it. Lay it to waste. You can read in Lamentations as Jeremiah is lamenting over what has just happened in Jerusalem. That's a very stark picture that we get. And then Cyrus comes after the Babylonians. And he goes through and lays things to waste and begins to take control. And you know what happens with Cyrus? It tells us in Second Chronicles and in Ezra that God stirred in the heart of Cyrus to allow the Israelites to go back to the land and rebuild the temple. To begin to reestablish Jerusalem. And so I want you to think about that image for just a second. That here we have that Cyrus and his armies are plowing through everything in its sight. The image it gives here that they make makes them like dust with his sword. It's a pretty vivid picture that it paints. And Cyrus is laying everything to waste. And as they're seeing that, as Isaiah's talking about that, everybody's going, this is a mess. How can any good come from this? Oh, no, what is happening that the Persians are taking over? And then just a, a little while later, God will take and he will turn Cyrus's heart for his purposes and his goods to restore Israel to their land. To go back to rebuild the temple, to set the scene for Jesus to come into that place, what we read in the Gospels. And God's working in and through all of that and not a single bit of it is out of his control. And it's not just ancient times. It's not just in the Bible. God is still working that way today. He is still sovereignly in control of all things. I was just reading this week about the persecution of Christians in China. And I don't know a whole lot about it. I was just reading a couple of different articles and, and reading about how in the late 1980s, Poland went from a communist nation and there was a great switch. And one of the reasons that happened, at least from what I was reading this week, is that uh, the Catholic Church got behind this change, moving from communism. And John Paul II, the pope at the time, was advocating for a change from communism. And as he did, what happened is China saw this change take place 
And they said, we need to tighten the controls on the Christian church because look what happened in Poland. And so they did. And in 1989, the Christian church began to be persecuted with a great intensity in China. They began to target Christian churches. They were shutting down churches all over China. If you were found worshiping in them, you were put into labor camps. There was this tightening of controls. And what happened is the Christian church went underground in China. Starting in 1989, this was taking place. Today... Right now, there's over a hundred million plus Christian Chinese Christians. And the church is growing like wildfire. And I think one of the reasons the church is growing like wildfire is there's no social Christians in China. No one just says I'm a Christian because it's the thing to say or it's a good, respectable thing. So, hey, yeah, I'm with them. You don't say that when you can be thrown in jail for being a Christian. And so what has happened is there are people that are on fire for Jesus throughout China. And they know their life could be taken by doing it. But what God has done is he has turned it and he has used it for his good. If they upped the persecution of the Chinese church, it has spread like crazy. And there's now over 100 million Chinese Christians. Uh, sociologists believe that by 20 30, there will be 250 million Chinese Christians in the Christian church in China. You know how many uh, communists there are in China? 90 million. What man means for evil, God can use for good because he has sovereignly control of all of these things. He is at work. And when we look at it and go, this is a mess, God says, I am at work. And it's exactly what he says in this passage. He says, I am doing a work in this. Who allows this king to come and to do this? I am the Lord. I am he. And so oftentimes we see struggles in the world. Like we see Chinese persecution. I'm not saying that we celebrate that, but we see that how God can work in spite of that. And so what happens, though, a lot of times is when we see really difficult things, and we struggle with them, we begin to have anxiety and worry and, oh, no, what about this? And what if this happens and how this would work? And I'm always struck by the statistic that says 85 percent of all the things that you worry about never come to fruition. We've heard that before. It kind of puts things in perspective. The things that you give your time and your worry and your anxiety and your stress to 85 percent of that never comes to fruition. Of the 15% that does come to fruition in some ways, 80% of that is way better than you thought it would be. And oftentimes you learn a really valuable lesson in it. And so what we do is we worry ourselves with trying to control situations and things around us that God is in control of. And we try to take it back and it causes all these issues. But we need to be reminded that God is great and he is the one that is in control of all things. That we can lay them at his feet knowing that he's in control. And it's not just great big things like nations. The rise and fall of nations. I want you to look at what he says here. It's not just that, but look at verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
Might I suggest that that's a good verse for you to memorize? Isaiah 41.10, maybe 41.9 and 10. God calls us and he says this, and I've brought you from the corners and you are my friend and I uphold you and I've got you. Verse 14, fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one that helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And he starts to go through and he tells you all these things that he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And you shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. And he tells these these promises of how he's at work and that he knows you and that he's got you. Now, you can read this and you can go. Yeah, but he says, but Israel, my servant and Jacob, whom I've chosen and the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And you go, this is the Old Testament. And he's talking about the people of Israel and he's talking about the people of Israel in the face of the Persians. And he's saying, I got you. And you go, yeah, that's OK, but that's the Old Testament. And he's talking about those people. Let me remind you with the fullness of the revelation of what the Bible says. Galatians chapter three, Paul writes, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then listen, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. And so when he says right here in the midst of this, that the offspring of Abraham, my friend from whom I took to the ends of the earth and called you from the farthest corners, who is he talking about? So about you who are in Christ, how is the fulfillment of all of that? The fullness of it is that Jesus comes and he comes to save He comes to call sinners to himself. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and Jesus chose you and he brought you out of that and you are now called friend. You are now a beloved child of God. There is nothing that is beyond his control. And so when he says here to you, fear not, for I am with you. I will be with you. I will be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will uphold you and I will help you with my righteous right hand. That is for you. It's not just Israel, but it's the descendants of Abraham. The children, that is us in Christ. And we see that clearly in what Jesus has done and finished for us. And so it shows us God's great care and love for us in all things. There's nothing outside of his control. There is nothing that he cannot and will not use for your good and his glory, even when you can't understand how that could be. So often we struggle with this because we assume omniscience. I remember Tim Keller saying that years ago, that we struggle with that when we assume omniscience. Omniscience means to be all knowing. And so we will say things like nothing good could come from this. And so let's be clear when I say that nothing good can come from this, that I understand how whatever this situation is, all the possible ways that it could work out. And I've decided that nothing good can come from any of them. It's not true. There's nothing that God cannot redeem that he cannot use all things for good, even when we can't understand why. And so if we have a God big enough to question How are you working in this? We have a God big enough to believe that he's working in ways that we can't understand. And that's exactly what's happening in this chapter. 
Cyrus comes through and everybody's like, what in the world? What is going on? And then just a, a, a few short years later, God turns the heart of Cyrus and he begins to restore and remake and do this. And he's using it for his good. God is sovereignly in control of all things and you can trust him in that. We often forget that. And so when we talk about the four G's here, uh, God is great. We often forget that God is great. We often forget that God is sovereignly in control. And so it's, it's hard because what will happen is we'll go, God is great and good and gracious and glorious. And we'll get to the end of the series and you're like, that's pretty straightforward. God is sovereignly in control and I know he's gracious and I know he's good. And you go, yeah, I got that. Okay, now I need to move on to some other things. But the truth is we don't got that. Almost every day we forget. We operate in unbelief and we need to be reminded of the truth. And so as we go through this and and we think about how we live in light of this, every single day we need to be reminded of the goodness of God and the way that has come to fruition in the gospel of Jesus and what he's done for us, who we are in light of that. The unbelief of my heart that will start to creep in and go, oh, no, nothing good can come from this. Or, oh, no, I need to take back control of this because it seems to be going awry. And the truth is God is in control of it. And I am called to be faithful to the things that he's put right in front of me today, trusting him that he's in control. And so when we talk about the four G's, uh, as you go out today on the table straight ahead, there's actually a stack of four cards, little sets of them. And on them has the great and good and gracious and glorious. And we make these sets and we give them out all the time. They have different verses. They have an explanation, big picture of what we're talking about. But then they have heart questions. How to kind of ask some questions of my heart of maybe I'm trying to take back control in my life. That's not to beat you up. That's not to make you feel like, oh man, I stink at this. It's to alert you that I'm in unbelief in this area, but then it's to remind you the good news that you don't have to be in control because God is. And you can rest in that. And so as we walk through this, this is the the heart of all of this is to be a tool in our discipleship. We need to be reminded of these things. And I'll remind you of this, that as we do that, this works best in community of believers together. I need people to speak the truth to me in my life. I need other people to say to me, I see this and here's what is true about you in Jesus to remind me of those. Oftentimes it can be very subtle in our heart and the way we experience these and other people around us will see it before we do. That's why we need to be walking in community together that other people would be able to speak the truth and love and encourage us about who God is and what he's done. God is great And you don't have to be in control because he is in control and he has every bit of it. So fear not for God is with you. Be not dismayed. He will strengthen you. He will help you and he will uphold you with his righteous right hand. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news that you are great. That you are sovereignly in control of all things. I pray that that would be impressed upon us afresh today. Uh, You know each person here, you know the things that they're dealing with, the desires of their heart, the struggles, the frustration, the sadness, the things that we're dealing with, that we're trying to take control of. Would you remind us today that you've got all of it? 
that we can lay those things down at your feet, trusting that you are sovereignly in control. And we thank you that that is true. We pray that as we leave here today, we would leave with a weight lifted of recognizing that you are carrying all of it, that you have every bit of it along the way, and we can trust you in that. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.